Amen. Thank you so much. Uh, it is such a joy for me uh, to come and be uh, able to, to bring the word this morning. Um, I am so grateful for this church. I am so grateful for our pastors. They have um, shepherded us faithfully, and uh, from this sacred pulpit every Sunday you hear God's word proclaimed, and that doesn't happen um, everywhere you could be worshiping today. So I am so grateful uh, for this opportunity to do this and be a part of the service this morning. I'd like you to take your Bibles today and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. There's a, a group of men uh, that I am uh, sometimes a part of when I get up early on Saturday morning who gather and uh, we study books together on Saturday mornings at Chick-fil-A. I think it's just an excuse to have you know, a fried chicken biscuit in the morning, but that's what we do. And um, one of the books that we are considering for our next study uh, is a book called Christianity and Liberalism by a man uh, whose name is J. Grisham Machen. Now, Machen was a Presbyterian theologian and a professor at Princeton University. He lived in the early part of the 20th century, and um, he was responsible for founding his own denomination. That's something else, to be able to say, hey, I founded my own religious denomination. It's called the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And he founded the Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. So, well-known, great man of God. And the most famous book he ever wrote was called Christianity and Liberalism. It's a book we're considering studying. And it's still very, very relevant to today. But not only was he all those things, but he was also an avid mountain climber, which is pretty amazing. He used to, he used to actually, you know, climb up some of, the, some of the largest mountains in the world. And once uh, he was able to, to climb in Switzerland the Matterhorn. I think I have a photo of that mountain to show you. Look at that thing. Um, he climbed all the way to the top of that. It took him a couple of tries, but he was able to get there. And while he was there, um, he talks about his perspective, his view from the summit, how you can look out from the summit there in Switzerland and see uh, lots of the different countries in Europe. And this is what he said. He said, in that land of Europe, humanity has put forth its best. There it has struggled and there it has fallen. There it has looked upward to God. You think of the great men whose memories you love, the the men who have struggled there for light and freedom and beauty, and most of all, for God's Word. And we know that the Reformation came out of that part of the world. Now, that was all written before World War II. And after contemplating uh, the struggles that our our European ancestors endured there, he, he turns his thoughts to the future. And remember, this was written in the early 1920s, so this was before World War II took place, but it was at the beginning of the rise of men like Mussolini and Hitler. And he said this, There is a God who in His own good time will bring forward great men again to do His will. Great men to resist the tyranny of experts and lead humanity out again into the realms of light and freedom. Great men above all who will be messengers of His grace. There is far above any earthly mountain peak of vision a God high and lifted up who though He is infinitely exalted yet cares for His children among men. 
Amen. That's a great, great statement. Today, this morning, we're going to look at, in Scripture, a mountain. Actually, two mountains. One place that is filled with darkness and fear and death and judgment. The other is a place of light and joy and hope and grace. If your Bible's open to Hebrews chapter 12, I'm going to begin reading at verse 18 and read through the end of the chapter. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in feastal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Would you bow with me, please, for a word of prayer? Father, this is your holy word. It is life and it is truth. I pray this morning as we open these scriptures that you will speak to our hearts, Father. May our hearts be open before you as our Bibles are open before us this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. There's been a lot of talk in the news as of late. If you follow the, the Christian uh, blogosphere, and I don't know why you would, but you might, about the, the, the struggle and the contrast that we as Christians have between the law and the gospel, the law and grace. And the best picture that I could come up with to help us understand those two things and the way that, that those things are opposite each other, and we've been singing about it all morning. We've, that's every song that we've sung have been about the fact that all we have is Christ and all we need is grace. And the law's demands can do nothing to earn or deserve favor before God. Jesus came to do for us what the law could not do. How many of you have read the book Pilgrim's Progress? Okay, it's the second most popular, most sold book in the English language. It was written by a man named John Bunyan. And I have a photo here of his grave. I'd like you to see that. That's John Bunyan's grave. That's in, in England. And John Bunyan was a pilgrim. Uh, uh, not a, he was a Puritan. He's buried in a Puritan cemetery there in England. And 
on either side of this grave, there are, there are two pictures. The first one is, this is Pilgrim climbing the mountain to God, trying to get to God, and he's carrying a load on his back. And that's a great symbol of what the law does. The law weighs us down. The law holds us down. The law keeps us from going to the place where we can meet God. In fact, it is nothing but a great and heavy burden. That's what he's carrying there. But on the other side, there's a photo of grace. You see, his, his, ba- his pack that he was carrying, where is it? It's at his feet, and he's kneeling before the cross of Jesus. As we look at these two mountains today that are depicted here in Hebrews, it is an, an image, a representation of the, the way that the law binds us, holds us down, keeps us from God, and drives us to the gospel, to Mount Zion, where Jesus is, where we can ha- have the freedom that comes through faith and trust in Christ. The book of Hebrews was written primarily to Christians who were tired and discouraged. They were in the midst of terrible persecution. The church was about 30 years old at the time the book of Hebrews was written. And and as you already know, we don't know the author of the book of Hebrews. A lot of people have speculated, but we don't know who wrote it. But there was persecution coming to the church from the Romans, but also there was persecution coming from the nation of Israel, from the Jewish people of the day. Once a person came to Christ, once a person came to be a believer in Christ, they were, uh, in many cases, ostracized. They were removed from the synagogue, which was the central place of community for Jewish people in that day. That's why Jesus so often in his sermons, you would hear him talk about forsaking father and mother and family to come and follow him. Because that's what it meant. In many cases, it meant an absolute forsaking of your family to follow Jesus. So the believers who received this letter were tired and worn down from the persecution they faced. And many of them were considering thinking about forsaking this whole Christianity business and going back to Judaism, going back to the synagogue and the sacrificial system that they had known before. They were thinking about forsaking the gospel. We know that in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, it tells us that those who go out from us are not of us, otherwise they would have remained, John says. So you had some true believers who were considering it, thinking about it, and you had some who were just hanging around the church members, hanging around Christians. They were not yet had come to faith in Christ, or maybe they were uh, make-believers and saying that they were Christians, but they really weren't. But some had actually abandoned the faith and walked away because they had never really believed. But the true Christians were seeing this happen And the more persecution became worse and worse, there was a more temptation for them to abandon their Christian faith. So the book of Hebrews was written as a warning to not go back to all those things that you have abandoned to follow Christ are not worthy to go back to. So over and over in the book of Hebrews, he tells us that Jesus is better than everything else that you've forsaken. He's better than the sacrificial system. Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than the angels. He's better than Abraham. That's what the book of Hebrews over and over and over again 
tells us. Then chapter 10, verse 18, we come to a place where the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, because of everything that I've said about how Jesus is so much better and so much greater than everything else, verse 23 says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. As an example of God's covenant faithfulness. Then we get to Hebrews chapter 11, which most of us know is the hall of fame of faith, right? And we have stories there of all the great saints who've gone before who were, who were faithful to God unto death. And we see all those Old Testament saints. And then chapter 12 begins by saying, Therefore, as a result of all these Old Testament saints, they're standing and waiting. Look, turn back to the beginning of chapter 12. He says, We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So he's saying those Old Testament saints... Those people in Hebrews chapter 11, they're standing on the sidelines. And the image I always have is like of an Olympic event, you know, where you have all these believers from the Old Testament are in the, the uh, stands and they're cheering you on as you're crossing the finish line or trying to cross the finish line. That's what we have. That's what, what leads us up to where we are in Hebrews chapter 12. So... The author is telling us over and over and over again the greatness of Jesus, the power of Jesus, what Jesus uh, is so much better than the law. He endured the cross, and he now it says in chapter 12 at the beginning, he says he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Why did Jesus sit down? What's significant about the fact that he's sitting? Well, a priest who sacrificed for your sins at the altar in the synagogue every day, was continually offering sacrifices. There was, there was always a sacrifice going on, right? There was always people coming to uh, lay on the altar an animal to pay for their sins for that one more time. And then the next time they sinned, they would come back. And it was just a continual uh, revolving door of people coming in and offering their sacrifices and animals being killed. But when Jesus made the final sacrifice for sin, He's telling us He sat down because the work was done. It was finished. It was over. That's what this passage of Scripture is about. Those people who wanted to go back who wanted to go back to Judaism, who wanted to go back to that sacrificial system, when they would go, there was an immediate response. When you made your sacrifice on the altar, you could see the animal's throat being slit. You could see the blood pouring out on the altar. You could smell the smells of death. You could see the priest absolve you of your sin. And it was so tangible. It was right there. There was an immediate response. But it was profane. God never intended for anyone to be saved through the keeping of the law or through the sacrificial system. All those things were designed to drive us where? To the cross. To Jesus. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
when you come to the realization that you cannot live up to God's standards, that the law doesn't save you, it just condemns you. Then you come to a place where you can believe in Christ and be saved and know Him. And that's what this passage is about. Verses 18 through 21 recounts for us the events that took place as the children of Israel escaped from the slavery of the Egyptians and experienced the deliverance of God. Let me read it to you again, and then I want to take you back to Exodus where this took place. He says in verse 18, "...you have not come to what may be touched." Blazing fire, a darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose word made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Back in the book of Exodus, after God had raised up this man, Moses, to be one of the people who would lead them out, and he ordered uh, the most powerful man on earth, Moses said, let my people go. And Pharaoh refused. And you know what took place, right? All the plagues that came upon the people of Egypt. Plague after plague, disaster after disaster. And it becomes very, very evident as you read the account in Exodus chapter 2 that God was sparing His people and pouring out His wrath on the Egyptians. Those who had oppressed His people for 400 years. God was pouring out His wrath on the Egyptians and pouring out His grace excuse me, on the Hebrews over and over and over again. Those plagues pile up. And the line of demarcation between the Jews and the Egyptians becomes self-evident. As the, the Egyptians are watching their family members die, their cattle die, the plagues, the frogs, the grasshoppers, the fleas, all that stuff is happening, and the Jews are experiencing none of it. And they see that, and they witness that, and the Jews know that, and they are the recipients of God's grace. And then the final plague comes, the final straw that breaks the camel's back, and the death angel comes. And those who have the blood of the Lamb over their doorpost are spared from the, the firstborn child being killed in the family. But all of Egypt cries because so many people died. Pharaoh says, take your people and go. Exodus chapter 11, verse 7 says this, But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. But not only does Pharaoh let them go, and the people say, please, leave our land, go away, we don't want you around anymore. But what do they do? The people who had held them under the thumb of slavery for 400 years they give them pockets full of gold and precious jewels. And so, if you were one of the people of Israel, if you were one of those who had been born and raised a slave in Egypt, and now you're free, not only are you free, you're leaving the land with more money than you've ever seen in your life. You're thinking, this God, He's pretty good. And he must love me an awful lot. This is my best life now. 
this is not bad. And as they depart from the land, they come to the Red Sea. And they realize, well, Pharaoh let us go, but guess what? He sent his army after us to kill us all. And they're, and they're there by the sea, and, and we know what happens next. Moses parts the Red Sea through the power of God, and they walk out on dry land. Pharaoh's army is, is swallowed up by the water, and they're free. Fully, finally, and completely free. And they celebrate. Exodus chapter 15 is the song of Moses and the people. I have it up on the screen, or you can turn to Exodus 15 if you'd like to follow along. Exodus 15, verse 1 says, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his horse he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. Verse 6, Your right hand, O Lord, is glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Verse 7, In the greatness of your majesty you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Skip down to verse 14. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. He says, everybody's afraid of this God that we're serving that has been so good to us. 15, now the chiefs of Edom are dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till your people pass by whom you have purchased. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. This place, O Lord, where you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, where your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. They are so happy about what God has done for them. They said all the nations are terrified of us. They're shaking in their boots because of us. Oh, and the God who is... With us, It's like the kid who has the biggest brother um, walking on the playground knowing, knowing that nobody's going to pick on him because he's got the biggest uh, big brother in the school. And they, they cannot wait. They cannot wait to get to Mount Sinai. Verse 17, the place of the Lord you've made for your abode, the sanctuary your hands have established. They cannot wait to get to that mountain to see God, to be in His presence. They cannot wait to see Him there. If we think about so many people today So many people in our culture today have this idea that God is on our side. And I remember, and you probably do too, when the patriotic fervor in America was at its height right after 9-11. And we said, God is with us and these people are, are against God and God is against them. And God was 
wearing red, white, and blue. The nation of Israel, this is what's going on with them. And the first principle I want us to see and understand from this passage of Scripture, and it comes basically from Exodus, but it's basically this. Grace without fear, and we'll explain that what fear is in a second, leads to self-righteousness. Grace without fear leads to self-righteousness. In Exodus chapter 15, after they had crossed the Red Sea, after they had marched out from there, they were heading towards Mount Sinai. Three days had passed and there was a shortage of water. And the people began to groan and complain to Moses. And they said, Moses, there's no water. What are we going to do? You've brought us out here and there's no water to drink. And so God miraculously in Exodus 15 provides water. Three weeks later, they begin to grumble again in chapter 16, verse 2. Uh, it says this, The people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. You see, because they'd been the recipients of God's grace, and because they'd seen His deliverance against their oppressors, because they had experienced grace upon grace upon grace, now when trouble comes, how did they respond? What was their response when trouble came? They began to grumble and complain, not just against Moses, but ultimately against God. If you read Psalm 78, you will see that over and over and over again, the nation of Israel, they saw the miracle working power of God. They received from God an amazing display of His grace and His love and His mercy, and yet they still complained. They demanded and they rebelled. Because after seeing the way that God had demonstrated His love for them, they honestly believed that they deserved better from God. They, they believed that they deserved better from God. They knew God was mighty. They understood that He could do wonders, but only if those wonders would benefit me. Only if the power that God has displayed is against the bad guys will I trust Him. One of my favorite TV shows growing up in the 70s was Happy Days. Anybody watch Happy Days when you were a kid? Great. Nothing was cooler when I was a kid than Arthur Fonzarelli, right? Nothing was better than that. Hey, that's right. And um, there was one episode I remember where he had he was having trouble seeing, and he had he had to go see Ralph's father, who was a, an optometrist, and he had to get glasses. And he didn't want anybody to know he had glasses because wearing glasses wasn't cool. And so he's in the bathroom, which he called his office. You remember that? He was in the bathroom and he was wrestling with, because he had to go out in front of the crowd that was there and he was going to have to speak and he had to read something. And in order for him to read something, he would have had to put the glasses on. And so he's frustrated and he doesn't want to do it. 
And he looks up to God and he makes this prayer. And his prayer is this. He says, hey, God, didn't you always say I was your favorite? Why, why me? You know, this woe is me business. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been there? Yeah, when something doesn't go right in your day, you're like, God, why me? You know, why now? It's always at the wrong time. It's always in the wrong place. Why me? Whenever a people experience a prolonged period of blessing from God without an understanding of His character and His nature, there always comes a sense of self-righteousness and of entitlement. And with that sense of entitlement comes a mass exodus of the faith the first time something goes wrong. And we live in a world where people regularly look up to God and with the children of Israel and with the fawns say, I deserve better than this. Because we receive God's grace for so long, because we've been uh, recipients of God's benevolence for so much time, we forget, or we've never known, who it is we're talking to when we pray and who it is that we are that's doing the talking. Grace, without seeing God as He really is, without a holy and reverential fear of Him, without recognition of His sovereignty, leads to self-righteous entitlement. In the military, we live and die by what are called fitness reports, right? It is a determination of of how we're doing compared to our peers. And when you write a fitness report, it's basically a license to lie because you have to talk about all the great things you are and how wonderful you are and all that you've done. And when it comes time to be promoted, you you take all those fitness reports and they are compared with the fitness reports of other people who've lied about what they've done. And this committee gathers and they judge and they look at those things and they decide then who's going to be promoted and who's not. Now, for uh, an O3, a lieutenant in the Navy, um, you have really two opportunities to have those things looked at, your fitness reports looked at, to determine whether or not you will be promoted or whether or not the Navy will say, hey, thank you for your service, but it's time for you to go home. A friend of mine that I know um, was not selected for promotion after two times um, having his service record, his jacket looked at. And we talked, uh, he and I, about that. And he went on about a 20-minute rant of how he had done this and he had jumped through. And there's the hoops and things you jump through. He had jumped through this hoop and that hoop and all the things that he had accomplished and all the things that he had done. And he said, why would God not allow me to be promoted? He did that because he thought he deserved something better. Whenever we believe that we deserve grace, 
no longer grace then, is it? Now, thankfully, this brother of mine in Christ, he came to his senses and he realized, okay, that was just me spouting off. It was my frustration. It was my anger. And now he's happy with it. He's happy where he is. And and, uh, God's continuing to bless him and, and use him in a mighty way. But at the time, and because, and I use that as an illustration because I have been there. I have done that. And I'm thinking maybe one or two of y'all have as well. What do we do in those moments when things go against us? What do we do in those moments when our spouse is unkind to us? When our children won't behave or won't do what we ask them to do or when they disappoint us? Any time that we complain about our life our, our life, our lot in life, our standing, where we are, how our boss treated us, or what is going on around us, or when that person cuts us off in traffic like we talked about in Sunday school this morning. All we're doing is displaying our own self-righteousness. That's number one. Grace without fear leads to self-righteousness. Point number two is that fear without grace leads to idolatry. Fear without grace leads to idolatry. Those Hebrews Christians who are thinking about going back to Judaism, the author is going to tell them, stop thinking about Judaism like it was this wonderful thing. Stop having those rose-colored glasses about the past and remembering what Sinai was really like. It was a horrible sight. The children of Israel were excited about coming to Mount Sinai But when they got there, what did they find? Verse 18, you have not come to what may be touched. Sinai was a real mountain. It doesn't mean you could touch it because they were forbidden. It means it was a real physical mountain. And what did they see when they got there? Blazing fire, darkness, gloom, a tempest, the sound of a trumpet, and a voice. The voice of God. So terrible was that voice that they heard from Mount Sinai, that they said, Moses, you speak to us, but please tell God to stop talking. Can you imagine? We don't want to hear from God anymore. If an animal were to brush up against the mountain just by accident, it had to be stoned or run through with a spear, but you couldn't touch it to kill it. Because Sinai was where God's presence was. This was God's mountain. It wasn't a holy place. It was a holy mountain because God was on the mountain. Just like when Moses was told, take off your feet, Moses, at the burning bush, you're on holy ground. Take off your shoes off your feet. It would be harder to take off your feet, wouldn't it? Take your shoes off your feet because you're standing on holy ground. It wasn't because that particular plot of earth was holy, but it's because God was there, right? God was at Mount Sinai. This is His mountain. Anyone or anything that is not holy had better stay away. That was the message. Have we ever really in our lives been afraid of God? Have we ever contemplated who He is, how big He is, how terrifying He is, and trembled. 
all of us need a better understanding of who we are in comparison to who God is. We take Him way too lightly. The author of Hebrews is saying to the people, if you want to go back to Judaism, if you want to go back to this old covenant, then this, Mount Sinai, is where you have to come. It's a horrible, terrible place. It lays us open and naked before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account, Hebrews 4.13 says. We're terrified of Mount Sinai because we see God in all His holiness and all His manifest glory. And because we see God as He, as he is, we see ourselves as we are, don't we? John Calvin said this. Had to be a Calvin quote today. Hence that dread and amazement with which as Scripture uniformly relates, holy men were struck and overwhelmed whenever they beheld the presence of God. Men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their own insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. What did the people do when they came to Sinai for the first time and they saw the smoke and they saw the fire and they heard the voice and they heard the trumpet? They told God to stop talking. Moses himself, the man who stood before Pharaoh, the man who raised his arms and the Red Sea parted, the man who who was performing all those signs and who had led the people up to this point, the man who talked with God as a man talks to his friend. What did Moses do when he got there? It says he trembled with fear. That was the point. And so what did the people do? When Moses went up on the mountain, God said, Moses, I want you and you alone to come up here. And Moses began to receive the law. The people, when Moses had left, and they, after seeing this sight of Mount Sinai and seeing God in all His majesty and glory, they, the first thing they did, they, they went to Aaron. And they said, Aaron, make us a different God to worship. Any God but that one will take. We don't want to worship that God. Make us a golden image, a golden calf, something. Because they wanted nothing to do with the true God. They wanted gods that would not speak quite so loudly, that would not shake the world quite so violently. They wanted a domesticated deity. They wanted a God like them. One that they could manage. You see, fear of God without grace, without understanding. And and notice, there's no grace at Mount Sinai. This is all law. This is all fear. There's no reprieve when they come to that place. Law without gospel leads to idolatry. Make us a God not like this one. Twenty years ago, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan coined a phrase about our culture. He said we were defining deviancy down. 
Idolatry is defining deity down. That's what they're doing. Make a God who's more like us, who's less demanding, less holy. I've heard it said that in the beginning, God made man in His image, and man's been returning the favor ever since. That's what we do. When we don't want to meet the demands of a holy God, we make a God who is less holy. And we call Him terms like the man upstairs. Calvin also said, we are, as human beings, idol factories. We make idols out of everything because we're afraid of the living and the true God. We're going to see here in just a second that when you come to Mount Zion, there is great fellowship. There is a great joy of who is there. But as we read this passage about Mount Sinai and how they came, there's nothing about who was there with them because they're standing alone. It is them and God and nobody else. It's as if they're standing before the judgment seat of God, which is, I picture it as we'll all be all by ourselves, just us and God. And that's exactly how, how the, the imagery is meant to, to be conveyed to us here because when you talk about Mount Sinai, all that they talk about in Hebrews there, all that the author tells us about is what is there, what they saw, the mountain, the smoke, the fire, and the, the hearing of the voice, the sounds that were coming. But when you come to Mount Zion, it's all about who is there with you. And we'll see that in just a second. If you want to go back to Sinai, he said, this is what you will find. Demands that you cannot keep, wrath that you cannot endure, and guilt that you cannot assuage. That's all the bad news. The good news begins in verse 22. But you have come. That's not where you've come. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable angels and feastal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. To understand that God is holy, Kent Hughes said, to understand that God is holy and that one is a sinner is to stand on the threshold of grace. Nothing but law at Mount Sinai, but nothing but grace when you come to Mount Zion. Aren't you glad we didn't come to Mount Sinai? But we did come to Mount Zion. Point number three. Grace overcomes fear and leads to redemption. Before you can recognize the glory and the beauty and the majesty and the, and the, the wonderful privilege you have of coming to Mount Zion, you have to recognize where you didn't come. You have to see Mount Sinai in all its fear, in all its Abject horror. You must understand that any and all attempts to meet God on your own terms are going to fail. Then you can turn and God will point your gaze 
to Mount Zion. It represents God's amazing, marvelous, wonderful grace. It's not a touchable mountain, but it is an approachable one. This is what we find. He says, the city of the living God. This is God's dwelling place. This is where God is. This is the city whose architect and builder is God, Hebrews 11, verse 10. And this is where God invites us to come and to live and to dwell with Him. He calls it the heavenly Jerusalem. The word heavenly just means spiritual. In John chapter 4, Jesus was asked by the Samaritan woman at the well, where... If Jerusalem is the place that you're supposed to worship, and our our pastors covered that and talked about that when we were in John chapter 4, and Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain where we are nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in what? Spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Worship in the heavenly Jerusalem at Mount Zion is worshiping in spirit and in truth. And then he says, to innumerable angels and feastal gatherings. If you go back and read the book of Exodus and you read about what happened in Mount Sinai, you'll know that there were angels at Mount Sinai as well. But he doesn't talk about them there because that's not the point. But here... He's telling us that when we come to worship God, when we come to Mount Zion, we come to the place where we can see God, where we can enjoy fellowship with God because of Jesus, we are joining with an innumerable company of angels who are there worshiping right now. That's what we're doing. The word innumerable in the Greek is just the largest number. It means tens of thousands. It's the largest number that they had in their language. How is heaven portrayed in the Bible? How do we portray it? It's always joyful. It's always glorious. It's always wonderful. And he says, when we come there, we join with that angelic choir, the angelic chorus in the praise and the worship to God. He calls, then he says, who, who else is there? He says, the, the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. The assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. Jesus is the firstborn. That's a title for him, signifying his inheritance. This is his assembly. This is his church. And we come with all those New Testament saints, all the believers who have died since Christ has come, are there at Mount Zion, and we're worshiping with them. Peter is there. Paul is there. Thomas, John, John the Baptist, Lazarus, Zacchaeus, Augustine, Martin Luther, Calvin, my dad. We will worship with all of them together. We'll join with them. And many times when we talk about heaven, we talk about who we're going to see when we get there, right? Who we're going to be with. Who, who it is that we're going to see when we get to heaven. And we should think about that because here he's telling us, when you get to heaven, you're going to be with all those saints who have gone before you and you're going to see them. But you're not going to be in amazement. Have you ever walked like through an airport or through it and you've seen a celebrity and how people are just like uh, in, in, in amazed and in awe of that person who's there? I'm not going to be in awe of John, the apostle, when I get to heaven. 
My eyes are not going to, to bug out when I see Paul walking down the streets of gold. Because my gaze, my focus, will be on Jesus. But He'll be there with me. He says, not only are all those people there, but God is there. The judge of all. God, the judge of all. And now He's approachable. To come into God's presence at Mount Sinai meant death and destruction. But to come into God's presence at Mount Zion is life. See, when Jesus died on the cross, when the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, it separated the Holy of Holies where God's presence was from where man could come. It's not that God lowered His standards. said, well, you know, nobody's, nobody's gotten to the point where they can come in, so, alright, I'll just let anybody... It's not that at all. It's that Christ has paid the penalty for our sins and we stand before a holy God just as righteous as Jesus. Mount Sinai and the Holy of Holies were, were signposts that says, Do not enter. Right? God's presence is here. Do not come in. Stay away. When the veil was torn, those do not enter signs were removed. And in their place was a welcome mat. that said, Come in. In. There's a hymn by a man named James Deck that, that I read last week. I want to share the words with you. It says, The veil is rent, our souls draw near unto a throne of grace. The merits of the Lord appear, they fill the holy place. His precious blood is spoken there before and on the throne. And His own words in heaven declare the atoning work is done. Tis finished, here our souls have rest, His work can never fail. By Him, our sacrifice and priest, we pass within the veil. Within the holiest of all, cleansed by His precious blood, before the throne we prostrate, fall, and worship Thee, O God. Boldly the heart and voice we raise, His blood, His name, our plea, assured our prayers and songs of praise, ascend by Christ to Thee. Very quickly, we, we need to move on. He says, You've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the innumerable angels of Easter gathering, to assembly of the firstborn, um, verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We know that from Genesis, the blood of Abel cried out for vengeance. It cried out that somebody repaid the horrible act that his brother Cain had done. The blood of Jesus cries out for mercy, cries out for forgiveness, and it cleanses us from all our sin. The last point that I want to share, beginning at verse 25, grace plus gratitude leads to worship. He says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. 
At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he's promised yet more. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. He says, he's going to shake everything. He's going to shake it all. Not just the earth. He's going to shake the heavens. Everything that stands against God and His kingdom is going to fall. That's what the author is telling us. He's going to shake Wall Street. He's going to shake Buddhism. He's going to shake Islam. Every false religion, everything that stands against the kingdom of God is going to be shaken. In order that the things, he says, verse 27... The things that cannot be shaken may remain. May remain. Therefore, because of all of this, because we are a part of an unshakable kingdom, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. See, we begin with the fire of Mount Sinai, but we end with the fire at Mount Zion. The fire at Sinai said, stay away. But the God who is a consuming fire at Mount Zion says, come and draw near. Let's pray. Father, we come because of Your grace. We come because You have called us through Your Holy Spirit and through the blood of Jesus Christ to come into Your presence. Thank You, Father, for the great gift of eternal life that we have in Jesus. Thank You for not bringing us to a mountain of judgment and doom and destruction, but to a mountain of joy and and peace where we can have access to your very throne of grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.